Hello, welcome along to a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. You've stumbled upon the smartest show in the history of the universe. Thank you for being there. My name's Dan. Welcome as we wander through the galaxy to take a peek at all the science secrets that are lurking nearby. This week, we'll travel back to the age of the dinosaurs and take a look at the creatures that lived with friends and the ones that roamed alone. They're on the move again. There they go. Bye. I like them. Fossils of many iguanodons have been found jumbled together in one place, which tells us that they moved in a herd, with the adults likely to band together. Also, we'll see how long it might take for our mission transmission message to reach different parts of space. But when I think about how long it will take to reach the closest bit of space, I'm thinking perhaps more about the closest star to us, so outside our solar system, and that star will be and i've got your questions to answer this week as always this time they're about blood and lava there's all that and loads more on another fun kids science weekly let's start things this week looking at the science in the news experts think they found a planet that could have life the problem is it's near a sun that is dying It is 117 light years from Earth. It's in the zone as well, which means it's not too cold or not too hot. So there could really be life that exists on this planet, but there is a race to figure it out because the star nearby is a white star, which means it could explode. Also, Australia have made the koala an endangered species across the east coast, which is where Sydney is. The marsupial was once thriving there, but there's been a dramatic drop in numbers because its land has been ravaged, it's been cleared, there's been bushfires, drought and disease. And finally, new fossils are changing the way that we think about Neanderthals. They were an early species of human, and we thought that Homo sapiens, which is what we are, came along from Africa and then wiped them out. But the discovery of a Homo sapien child's tooth buried deep down from about 54,000 years ago means that we lived at the same time as Neanderthals and maybe we got on, who knows? Right, it's time to travel back to the age of the dinosaurs now. This is a series that looks at the big brutal beasts that lived in the Cretaceous period, which is over 65 million years ago. Now, the world by this point was home to more species than ever before, and they behaved in some very different, unique ways. Some preferred to live on their own and others with a herd. Take a listen. Imagine going back in time, not 100 years or 1,000 years, but millions of years. To the age of the dinosaur. Welcome to the Cretaceous period, which existed between 65 and 144 million years ago. The world by this point was home to a wider variety of environments and species than ever before. And different species behaved in different ways some preferring to live on their own, others liking the company of the herd. Uh-oh, let's hide. We've got company. Don't panic. It's a herd of iguanodons. They're plant eaters and more interested in the vegetation around here. They have to be, as they need to consume the equivalent of 300 bananas every day. 
iguanodon fossils have been found all over the world, which means they were a common sight in Cretaceous times. They reached up to 11 meters in length and were experts at stripping greenery and fruits off plants. Cool. Did you see? It looks like they have hands. That's true. Iguanodons could stand on their rear legs and use their hands to grasp vegetation. A task made easier by their flexible fifth finger. They're on the move again. There they go. Bye. I like them. Fossils of many iguanodons have been found jumbled together in one place, which tells us that they moved in a herd with the adults likely to band together to protect the young from predators. But not all dinosaurs behaved this way. Yes, look at that poor thing over there. Maybe he's lonely. Don't worry, that's a Pinacosaurus, with plates of armor all over his back and an enormous club on the end of his tail. He can look after himself. That tail is perfect for swinging at anyone who thinks he'd make a tasty dinner. Armored dinosaurs such as Pinacosaurus are known as ankylosaurs meaning armored dinosaurs. They were plant eaters too, like the iguanodontians. But in fossil finds, there is usually just one of them, so they probably lived and died alone. Look, another herd, and these seem in a hurry. Quick, duck and hide. It's a pack of velociraptors. These sneaky hunters are carnivores and can bring down animals much larger than us. Not only do they have razor-sharp teeth, deadly curved claws and an ability to run fast, they also have very large brains. They were believed to be intelligent enough to hunt together when necessary, outwitting their prey to tear it to pieces. That Pinacosaurus is flexing his tail ready. Quick, let's run. Paleontology, pick. Fossils have been part of the Earth for millions of years, and studying them is something paleontologists are experts at. Once larger rocks in an area have been cleared away, hammers, chisels and picks are used to tap at the Earth around the fossil to loosen it further. These pieces of rock and Earth are called the matrix, then a series of brushes from stiff to soft are used for delicate work. If the fossil needs to be moved, it's often wrapped in a plaster cast to keep it safe. Just like the sort you would get if you broke your leg. The fine work of removing the remaining rock from the fossil then goes on back at the museum's laboratory. We'll have another episode of Age of the Dinosaurs on next week's podcast. And you can listen to them whenever you like. In the meantime, over at funkidslive.com. Right now, it's question time on the show. If there's something sciencey in your brain that you need figuring out, leave it as a review for us over on Apple Podcasts. Uh, give us five stars so I can see it. Leave your name. I'll say hello. There's a little comment box at the bottom. That's where you put your question. This one is from Amna and Joseph, who wants to know, how does blood get from your bones into your veins. Well, I know what you mean. There's a slight difference here, though, because veins take the used blood back to the heart. I think you mean arteries. They take fresh blood from the heart to power the organs. 
and that's what helps out with your new blood too. Now that blood is made in the bone marrow, which is inside your bone. There's a complex system of arteries that are in there as well. And it's really simple. The arteries, they take the new blood from inside the bone, like a road joining a big motorway. It connects to the main system, which takes your blood to all the vital organs that need it. And then the veins bring it back to the heart. And that's why bone breaks can be very serious because there's hidden bits of blood inside them. Thank you for the question, you two. Here's one from Kane who wants to know, how is lava made? Well, lava is melted rock. And when it's underground, it's called magma. In a volcano, there's a lot of particles that make up our planet stored there. They're quite radioactive. Now, when they get old, they crash into each other. They've got a lot of energy and that makes heat. Then when a volcano erupts, that rock, that molten rock, it explodes out of the top. This bubbling magma then cools down and it becomes lava, which flows down the side of a volcano. Eventually it hardens up. That's what lava is. And that's how new islands are made. Kane, thank you so much for your question. If there's something you want answered on the show next week, you need to leave it as a review for us over on Apple Podcasts. If you want to send your voice to space, you need to be part of Mission Transmission. It is a radio show that we are beaming through the galaxy. Helping us do that is the team from the Royal Observatory Greenwich. We're speaking to one of them now. Tanya DeSales-Marx joins us. Tanya, thanks so much for being there. Hello, Dan. Thank you for having me. Now, we're sending this message to space filled with everything about humans. So aliens finally know where we are. Uh, How long will it take to reach the closest bit of space to travel through the Earth's atmosphere Mm -hmm. and then hit space? How long will that take? Well, I mean, if we just talk about space, space itself just outside the atmosphere is not very far. But when I think about how long it will take to reach the closest bit of space, I'm thinking perhaps more about the closest star to us, so outside our solar system. And that star will be Proxima Centauri, which is, well, a star that has exoplanets orbiting around it. Uh, So it's a planetary system. And that star is about 4.2 light years away from us. And so that means that it will take uh, about four uh, years for that message to reach the closest star to us. So... The, the, the closest star, Proxima Centauri, that's, it's like the sun, isn't it? It's like that system's sun. Well, it, 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 is, it is actually um, a cooler star than our sun. So uh, stars, uh, you have different types of stars, and that has to do with the mass of the star. And the sun is sort of an average star. Proxima Centauri is actually a cooler uh, star, a dwarf star, a red dwarf star. But you can imagine it as... Yes, uh, a planetary system where you have a star and at least two confirmed planets. We might have more in that system, but uh, two planets uh, orbiting around that cooler uh, red star. So our system that orbits the sun is the solar system. What's Mm -hmm. the name of the area that orbits Proxima Centauri? Do we know? (laughs) We just call it the planetary system, uh, the Proxima Centauri planetary system. (laughs) So we, uh, we know about these two exoplanets, uh, that, and you, as you say, there might be more, and it will take four years mm-hmm. uh, the message to get there mm-hmm. if, if some life form hears it, unless they've got much more sophisticated modes of tech than we do. It's going to take four years to get back. Yeah, but let me just say that that's actually not too bad because space is very, very vast. So uh, it, that's actually not too bad. What about a bit further out? 
how much do we know about different planets, different mm -hmm. star systems that it could reach if it traveled maybe a few more years? You know, since radio and TV were invented, we've been sending signals to space unintentionally. We didn't know that was happening, but we have been sending signals to space. Well, you can imagine the signals that we're sending out into space as a bubble that uh, centered on the Earth that is growing and growing and growing further and further away from uh, the Earth. And that bubble is called the radiosphere. And because we have been se sending signals for about 100 years or so, so you, uh, you can imagine that signals from Earth, so TV and radio signals, have been traveling about 100 light years in every direction. Wow. So uh, we know that those, uh, those signals have actually encountered many stars because within 100 light years in every direction, uh, you have lots and lots of stars, nearby stars with exoplanet systems around them. And um, we know that the further you go, uh, the further away you are from the Earth, the signal gets weaker. So maybe the, the music from the 1920s will have been distorted by a lot by the time, you know, if it's 100 light years away from us. But still, uh, well, you can imagine that uh, along those stars, those that if those stars have uh, exoplanets orbiting around them, and they actually have intelligent life form that has could have radios that could listen to pick up our signals, then they could be actually dancing to our pop charts. Wow. <laughs> which That's is incredible. kind of fun, which is a quite a fun a fun thing to to think about. So I'm so happy that. We were able to get you on just to maybe give us a glimpse of who might be listening. Maybe it's some tiny alien bugs on near Proxima yeah. Centauri dancing to the Beatles. Uh, Tanya <laughs> de Salzmark from the Royal Observatory Greenwich. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much to Tanya for coming on the show. It's a double guest episode. We're going big today for Mission Transmission. In a little bit, you can hear what other messages have been sent up to space to try and reach the aliens. That's on the way. Right now, it's time for this week's Dangerous Dan, which is all about a strange plant that you might have heard of before. The mandrake is a species of plant from the nightshade family. We've talked about that on the show before. You'll find them in the Mediterranean by Italy, Spain, Greece, and up in the Himalayan mountains. Now, they have quite a fat root. Their plant has petals of purple and yellow, and they make a fleshy berry fruit from the top. Now, in Greek and Roman times, it was thought that the mandrake would shriek when they pulled it from the ground. It was thought to be in the power of the dark spirits. Does that sound familiar to you? Yeah, it's what happens in Harry Potter. They have the mandrakes, don't they? But then in Hogwarts, Professor Sprout gives them earmuffs to protect them. In real life, you don't get earmuffs, but thankfully there's no shrieks, no cries, but it's dangerous. The plant can make you hallucinate, so you see things that aren't there. It does very weird stuff to your brain. It's also poisonous, so it can knock you out and can cause serious damage to you. That's why this mandrake inspired what you see in the Potter books. And it means that mandrake goes straight on our Dangerous Dan list. Time to catch up with Professor Hallux now, one of our favourite geniuses on the show. In this series, he and Nurse Nanobot are with us every week at the moment, taking a look inside your body and having a look at what might go wrong and how medicines can fix them. This episode, it's all about asthma and what's happening in your lungs. Professor Halex's Map of Medicine. Professor. 
Professor! Oh no! He's on that game again! He said he'd help me tidy up the equipment cupboard. <coughs> Phew, it's dusty in here and so untidy, like an explosion in a test tube factory. I'll just balance this box of beakers over here. I'm a bit busy at the moment, just working on my marvellous map of medicine. I've invented it to show you loads of medical places you might visit and the medical people who you might meet there. It's going to help us with some seriously sick questions. Look, here's a question coming through now. Come on out of there, nurse, and let's open the video phone. And let's open the window, too. Where did all this dust come from? Your messy cupboard, that's where... Happy Health Help Desk. I've been getting out of breath and the doctor says I have asthma. Can you tell me a bit about it? She says I have to go to the asthma clinic to see a special nurse. What's that all about? Can you help? Of course. Asthma clinics are held at most doctor's surgeries and nurses are one of the most interesting medical professions of all. I couldn't agree with you more, Professor. Although that's because I'm a nurse myself. Here's the clinical crunch on asthma. <laughs> clinical crunch. Whoops. Asthma is when your airways, which carry oxygen to your lungs, get irritated by a trigger such as dust, air pollution or cigarette smoke. The airways swell up and the muscles around them tighten. Air cannot travel easily through this small passage to your lungs, so you have trouble breathing. At any time, but is often worse when you're exercising or somewhere dry and dusty, like the professor's equipment cupboard. It is something that runs in families and is connected to eczema and allergies. So if you've got one, you might have the others too. <gasps> the asthma clinic at your doctor's surgery is a checkup just to make sure you're comfortable managing your asthma. You can practice using the inhalers and nebulizers that will help you and get loads of tips about how to do all the things you like. For example, running around and joining in energetic games. These clinics are often run by nurses, some of the most versatile medics on the map of medicine. Let's find out more about them. Opening the map of medicine. So what is a nurse? Nurses help us get better when we are ill. They also help us to stay healthy when we're well. If you have a long-term condition or a disability, you may have had nurses helping you find ways to manage normal daily things. And nurses are found in lots of places. Mr Jones to room three, please. Like just around the corner at your local doctor's surgery. There's probably a few practice nurses there, holding clinics and doing vaccinations, helping with changing dressings, all sorts. Ouch! That was a really sticky plaster. And another place you might find a lot of nurses is the hospital. Hospital nurses provide round-the-clock patient care. They monitor a patient's vital signs, give medicine, take blood for testing and work closely with your doctors and families to keep everyone up to date on a patient's condition. They often have specialities, like the nurses who work in the operating rooms alongside the surgeons. Now that sounds pretty action-packed, but some nurses venture to even more dramatic places to help people. 
in the sky. Or at sea, nurses are helping to transport sick or injured people or caring for passengers. In fact, anywhere in the world where someone needs health care, you can probably find a nurse. Including dusty old cupboards. Oh, those test tubes have taken a dive. I told you we needed to clear it out, Professor. All right, let's sort it out together. There's just time for a disgusting detail about nurses, if you have one, nurse. Definitely. Disgusting detail. Florence Nightingale was one of the first nurses. She was famous in the Crimean War, which was over 150 years ago. It was a terrible war, where hundreds of thousands were killed. Florence travelled to Scutari in Turkey to help run the hospital for injured soldiers. But she was appalled at what she found. The place was dirty and smelly, with no proper toilets. Yuck! It was disgusting! She knew the importance of keeping things clean. Before she arrived, most patients didn't die from their wounds. They died because they got sick in hospital from all the dirt. Florence totally cleaned up, ensuring the wards were scrubbed and patients washed. Ways that infection is controlled in hospitals even today. Fantastic! Time for us to make a clean getaway. But before you join us again, why not have a look at our website to find out more and explore Map of Medicine for yourself? Alex's Map of Medicine is produced by Fun Kids with support from the Wellcome Trust. Now, we are on a quest to send the first ever radio show to space, and your voice can be the star. We've had hundreds of submissions, so many incredible recordings and messages to the aliens sent in on the Fun Kids website. We are listening to them all, and it's not long till we are going to broadcast it into space with the astronaut Tim Peake. That's happening on February the 21st. You can find out more at funkidslive.com. Now, we're hoping to be the first radio show in space. But what other messages have been sent out through the galaxy? Let's find out with Patricia Skelton, who is an astronomer from the Royal Observatory Greenwich. I spoke to her recently, and she starts off telling us about the golden record when we sent that up through the galaxy in the Voyager mission 40 years ago. What was that all about and how did we try to explain ourselves to aliens? So the golden records are famously on board the two Voyager spacecraft. So uh, just in case uh, people aren't familiar with those two missions, uh, they both launched in the latter part of the 1970s. So we're looking at 1977. And the purpose of the Voyager spacecraft or the Voyager missions sort of conduct a grand tour of the hour, explore the rocky planets, the gas giants. Um, we had sent uh, some pioneer spacecraft out there, but the Voyager missions were designed to really go. So very exciting, Uranus and Neptune. Now, the way these two missions were designed was they're not dedicated orbiters. So, uh, for example, if we think of um, the current mission at Jupiter, that's Juno, and it's an orbiter. So it goes round and round the planet. But with the Voyager spacecraft, they were flyby missions. So basically what this means is you send them out on their journey, they go and visit these planets, but they just fly past and they'll just keep traveling out into space. And they had the idea and they'd done something similar with the pioneer missions in the early 1970s was 
to include a message from the Earth, so a message that could hopefully be decoded by an advanced alien civilization. Now, on the Pioneer missions, it was very simple as a, a metal plaque that was affixed to the side of the spacecraft, and it had images engraved on it, and the images were basically a map of how to find us. So the idea being that should an alien civilization find them, they'd be able to decode this message and know uh, first of all, where our solar system was relative to other stars in um, our galaxy. And more importantly, we sort of did a, we are here. So we kind of highlighted the Earth to show them that that's where the, this, these probes came from. They took it one step further and actually wanted to record sounds of the earth and so they created these famous golden records and the records themselves have got images engraved on the surface again these images are kind of a, a map explaining where the spacecraft has come from again should an alien civilization find it and there's also very importantly instructions on how to play the record because it would not be a good idea to send this out without instructions of how to actually play it and the record itself is very interesting because it contains, as I mentioned, sounds from the earth, but it also contains images. So they were able to record images onto these records. And there were images that show the earth. It shows the diversity and, and the sounds are very similar too. So you've got sounds of nature. So things like, you know, animals and you've got the sound of thunder. And then, of course, you've got uh, the sound of man. So you've got the sounds of trains and cars. Um, and also a heartbeat. So it's a really interesting mixture of messages, plus an assortment of uh, greeting messages in different languages. And of course, because it's a record, it contains music. So it's got a selection of music from classical out into rock. So whoever's lucky enough to perhaps find this one day is going to get an incredible sort of archive of the earth. Um, granted, obviously launched in, as you said, the late 1970s and things have changed a bit since then, haven't they? So uh, music tastes, etc., have changed, but it's just a really nice little summation of, I suppose, man and, and the earth really. And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. Thank you so much for listening. If there's something science that you want answered on the show next week, leave it as a review for us over on Apple Podcasts. While you're there, so many brilliant science shows that we've got. We've got loads more shows, loads more podcasts for you. They're on uh, Google Podcasts and Spotify too, and you can have a listen on the free Fun Kids app. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. Listen to us all over the country on your DAB digital radio, on that free Fun Kids app, and at funkidslive.com. <laughs>